What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode here on the T. Clark Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Clark, and today we're back for another round of listener Q&A, where I take your questions and answer them in depth here on the podcast. So first of all, if you have questions that you would like to see answered on the podcast, go ahead and just shoot me a DM on Instagram, shoot me an email, let me know what your questions are, and I'll be sure to, one, get back to you individually and answer your question, and two, answer it in depth on the podcast as well so everyone else can hear it too. Um, and then as always, if you find this episode helpful in any way, shape or form, go ahead and just share it with at least one other person that you think would benefit from this episode as well. The more people that we can get listening to this information and getting the help they need, the better. So as always, you guys sharing is very much appreciated. Last but not least, if you haven't already, go ahead and check out the athlete's guide to nutritional periodization. You can click the link down below. Enter in your name, your email, and it's all yours completely free. 75 pages, nine chapters, taking you through exactly how to set up your nutrition protocol for optimal athletic performance. So if you're an athlete, you know someone who's an athlete, you're a coach, definitely need to get your hands on this. So down below, just enter in your name, your email, and it's all yours completely for free. So without further ado, well, first of all, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I really appreciate you tuning in. And without further ado, let's get into the questions for this week. All right, so the first question for this week comes from Julian. He asks, what are your favorite, LOL, if you have any, forms of cardio, specifically the higher intensity ones? So I don't know if you guys saw my post a couple days ago about how I'm two or three weeks into my cut and I haven't done any cardio whatsoever. That Now I have, since that post, I have done one session of cardio, mind blown, right? Um, so I just want to start off by saying cardio isn't necessary for fat loss in the earlier stages. You can definitely, if you're at resistance training, your strength training and you diet correctly and you dial in your nutrition correctly, you can create a pretty decent calorie deficit strictly through, um, strength training and food. So if you don't like cardio, if you're not a fan of cardio, don't force yourself to do cardio for endless hours every week just because you think it's necessary for fat loss. Now, as you get deeper and deeper into a cut, then cardio becomes more and more necessary. What I usually suggest is just doing the minimum effective dose. So do as little as you can to elicit the result that you want to see. So if you find that one session a week of cardio is all you need to get the needle moving in the right direction, along with your nutrition, of course, then stick with that. And then as soon as you plateau, you have a couple options. You can either take uh, some more calories away and go deeper into a calorie deficit through food, or you can create an extra calorie deficit through adding another session of cardio. So instead of doing one session, you do two sessions. Just simple as that. Um, But I know that wasn't the question. And to get back to the question, what are my favorite forms? Um, That's a tough question since I'm not necessarily a fan of cardio. Um, Not, not, I would say not a fan of as in like, I don't recommend doing it, but not a fan as in like, I don't enjoy it a ton. I would much rather lift weights, but cardio is definitely necessary for long-term health and cardiovascular health and all that good stuff. So I know I don't want to make it sound like I'm bashing on cardio in any way. We just have to use it in the right context and it really depends on the individual. But if I had to pick my favorite, I would just say like, if you're an athlete or a former athlete um, that used to play like a team sport or something like basketball or, or soccer or something like that, just pick up sports is a great way to get some cardio in without it necessarily feeling like quote unquote cardio. You're just going out there having fun, but it's definitely cardiovascular work. Um, and it's varying intensity too. So that's, that's good. So first of all, I would say if you're, if you're an athlete or if you enjoy playing sports, um, just pick up sports is a great place to start. Obviously don't get yourself injured. 
But if you're, if you're in a place where that's safe, then go ahead and play some pickup sports, maybe a couple times a week. And that's totally, that'll totally get the job done. Secondly, I'd probably say if you're, if you have the capacity to just regular old sprints, I mean, I think people want to overcomplicate things a lot. Um, I honestly enjoy just doing regular old sprints, like nothing crazy, none of these crazy, like plyometric, like circuits and stuff. It's just like people overcomplicate. They want to make it a lot fancier than it has to be. And the reality is regular old sprints. Like if you're, if you're in a place where you're healthy enough and your joints are good and you're not going to hurt yourself just sprinting, then just doing sprint intervals is a great way to start. Hill sprints are also um, a good option. And if you're in a place where running isn't a possibility, maybe you don't have the best form, maybe you're dealing with the injury or something like that. A stationary bike is a great way to go too. And you can either do low intensity steady state, or you can do high intensity intervals, however you like, just switch it up. Um, depends on the, depends on the individual really. And obviously like I'm not a personal trainer, so I'm not going to go too deep into which like modality you should or shouldn't use. Um, but that's an option too, especially if you deal with like injuries and stuff like that, since, there's not much impact or really any impact at all. So a, sta- a stationary bike would be a great option. And kind of a cousin to that would be the assault bike, which in my opinion is a hell of a lot harder. Um, if any of my CrossFitters out there know the assault bike is literally a nightmare, but it's a great way to just get some high intensity cardio in, um, especially like intervals, doing sprint intervals on the assault bike. Again, not very much impact. And it's a great way to get your heart rate up and uh, get that going. But those are just a few of my, like, if I had to pick a couple, that'd probably be my go-to. I also like the rower, too. It's like a concept two rower, um, doing intervals on there. Steady stay on the rower kind of sucks because it gets really boring after a while. But the thing is, even though it's boring, you have to keep doing it because, like, let's say if you're walking on a treadmill, um, you can, like, be on your phone. You can be doing other things and not really have to focus on it, but you're still getting the cardio in. Whereas if you're on a rower your hand and your hands and feet are bound. So like, or not bound, but like you're using them. So you can't really go on Instagram or go on your phone or uh, read or whatever. You have to be just rowing. So it gets really boring after like five minutes. Um, I, that was actually the first cardio session I did a couple of days ago into my cut. Um, and I, I rode for 15 minutes and it was like the longest 15 minutes ever. And then all before I move on, just walking literally, like not even on a treadmill either just go outside and walk um i know people count that as neat but you should really try to get your steps up to like 10 to 15,000 before you even start adding in cardio if you're if you're getting less than 5,000 steps a day that's a really low hanging fruit that you can go ahead and attack and get a lot of benefit from if you just raise your steps let's say from 5,000 to 8,000 you'll see benefit from that hands down and if you can get that somewhere between 10 and 15,000, that would be great. Now, this is where the individualization comes into play. Like if you're at a desktop all day, or if you're doing something all day where you literally just can't get up and move for whatever reason, then that's maybe where you want to add some designated cardio in there to get some, to get some movement in. Um, but again, it really just comes down to the individual. I know that's kind of a roundabout answer to the question, uh, but hopefully it gave you guys some ideas. If you have any questions about anything, just uh, shoot me a message. I can shoot you in the right direction. Again, I'm not a personal trainer, so I definitely want to stay within my scope um, and not speak too much on things that I'm not necessarily an expert on. Um, so hopefully I gave some pretty decent advice. Um, and if you have any questions, just shoot me a DM. I can definitely point you in the right direction to um, other resources as well.
All right. So next question is from Zach, and he asks what I think about melatonin as a supplement. So for those of you guys that don't know, um, melatonin is a hormone. It's a neurotransmitter that regulates uh, sleep cycles, and it's what makes you tired and makes you want to fall asleep. And people who struggle to fall asleep often resort to supplementing with melatonin to allow that to happen, to help them fall asleep. And now, again, it's this case is super, super individual, but for the vast majority of people, I would like to see you try to exhaust all the other possibilities when it comes to helping yourself fall asleep more easily before you go to melatonin. Because look, melatonin is a hormone. And as with most hormones, when you supplement with them exogenously, so that means you're, you're taking a synthetic or um, outside source not made by your own body. So when you're supplementing with them exogenously, your endogenous production, so the production of your hormones inside of your body, is affected because your body recognizes, oh, okay, so we have enough, so we don't need to produce anymore. We don't need to produce as much. So you got to be careful with what, with um, supplementing with an uh, endogenous or exogenous hormones like melatonin. Like for example, if you go on steroids and you take anabolic steroids, you take testosterone, your natural uh, production of testosterone is going to decline. It's the same sort of principle. So you just got to be aware of that. And that's one of the reasons why I really recommend that you exhaust all your other options when it comes to improving your sleep, because there's so many other things that you could do before you have to resort to melatonin um, supplementation. There's so many other things. And I'll take you through a, a quick checklist of them right now. I can do a whole podcast. I can do a whole series of podcast episodes on sleep. Um, but what I recommend in terms of like melatonin supplementation is to exa- exhaust all your other options when it comes to improving your sleep before you start supplementing with melatonin. Now, in some cases, some people need it. And that's a case-by-case basis. I can't say whether or not you do over the podcast. That's a very individual um, individual case-by-case basis. So some people do need it and some people will benefit from it. But for most people, I think they resort to supplementation way too soon because it's like a, everyone's looking for that magic pill. And like no doubt, it's going to help you fall asleep easier because that's what melatonin does. But if you, again, if you're going to um, affect your own endogenous production of that hormone. And two, if you take it, some people will re- report like having a more difficult time waking up in the morning because you're supplementing with it endogenously and your body's not necessarily regulating how it's being produced. So there might be like levels in your blood, in your blood lingering around in the morning when it's time for you to supposed to be waking up there's still melatonin circulating around making drowsy and tired and makes it difficult to wake up in the morning. So some people report feeling like that. So really just exhaust all your other options. And when it comes to your other options, things like turning on night shift on your phone, because the blue light from your phone and from your TV screen and from your computer screen, they all suppress melatonin. So before supplementing with exogenous melatonin, do your best to maximize endogenous melatonin by accounting for factors like blue light. So easy thing you can do, turn on night shift on your, on your iPhone. Um, turn on night shift on your MacBook or your laptop or whatever. A really easy way that you can just eliminate essentially all blue light is wear blue light blocking glasses. I use uh, Swanwick's. They're like 60, 60 bucks. Like they're not the cheapest in the world, but like with anything, you get what you pay for. And you pay for that one time and they are a game changer. I'm not sponsored by them. It would be awesome if I was. 
but they really help me and uh, blue light blockers have helped me immensely fall asleep. Like even if I'm on my laptop until like 15 minutes before I go to bed, which I sometimes am uh, probably more often than I should be, I'm wearing the blue light blockers. So it doesn't necessarily affect my melatonin production as much. Now, of course, you still got to deal with the stimulation of being on an electronic device and social media and all this stuff. So you still want to limit electronic use, which kind of segues into the next tip, which is try to limit your electronic use like 15 to 30 minutes before bed. Ideally, you'd want to see that closer to an hour, but practically speaking, most people aren't going to do that, myself included. But if you can stay off your phone at least like 15 minutes before you go to bed, it'll help your brain calm down. <coughs> Excuse me. And in, that, in those 15 minutes, just do things like brush your teeth. You can even do some deep breathing, some meditation, um, do a brain dump in a journal or something like that. Just empty your mind, calm your mind down. So when you get in bed, your thoughts aren't racing as much and you're able to calm down and fall uh, asleep much more easily and much quickly, or much, much more quickly. Um, just things like that. And another tip would be to keep your room relatively cool. The optimal temperature seems to be around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. If you live with multiple people, just find a compromise. My, um, in my house, we usually have it between 65 and 70, like no problem. And it should really be cool enough that it's comfortable for you to be underneath the sheets. That's usually a good litmus test of if it's cool enough, if it's too cold. Like obviously you don't want it freezing, but have it nice and cool to where it's comfortable to get underneath your sheets and fall asleep. Um, that's it. That's another tip. Uh, another tip would be to make the room as dark as possible. This could include, this could mean a couple things. One, uh, get blackout, blackout shades. They're very cheap on Amazon. Actually, I think you can get them for like 10 or 15 bucks. And that way you eliminate all the light from, uh, outside sources like the windows and all this stuff and just make it as dark as possible. If that's not possible for you, um, for whatever reason, it, let's say you're living in a dorm room or something like that, for whatever reason, you can't get those blackout shades. What you can do is get a sleep mask. And that's what I use personally. And if you get one that kind of leaves room, you got to get a, I believe it's called a concave sleep mask. It leaves like room for you to open your eyes actually, but like it is really good at blocking out the lights. So that way you like, you don't have that like pressure on your eyes, which can make it difficult. Sometimes I had one of those and it was just terrible. I couldn't sleep with it because it was like pressing my eyes in and it was super uncomfortable. But if you get one with like a concave, um, eye mask, that'll be great. It'll block out all the light. That's what I use every single night. Even though my room is relatively dark, I still like to use it, um, just to keep it as dark as possible. And I find that it helps a lot. Let's see. Let's see. Another thing too is some people do better not eating a couple hours before bedtime because when you eat that draws blood to your digestive system and when you draw blood to your digestive system um it raises your like body temperature and wait let me see wait hold up i feel like i said that wrong so when you eat um that's one of the reasons but the main reason actually excuse me it's like almost nine o'clock here and i'm actually really like brain like fried um so what actually happens, sorry about that mix up, but what actually happens is when you get closer to bedtime, your circadian rhythm makes your body want to naturally slow down and essentially almost stop digestion. So when you take in food, it's kind of like the kitchen's already closed, um, essentially. So when you take in food, it kind of throws everything off. And I don't want any 
calories in versus calorie out like zealots to come after me and be like, oh, you can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter when you get, you say you're not going to gain fat, whatever. Like, okay. Yes, we get it. But we got to take into consideration other aspects of nutrition other than just calories in versus calories out. And we're talking about things other than fat loss right now. We're talking about sleep quality. And if you eat right before going to bed, probably not the best call for your sleep quality. So if you already suffer with like poor sleep quality and you don't, you don't fall asleep quickly, that might be an area you want to look at. Um, so just take into account how, um, how soon before bedtime you're eating. And I would recommend at least 90 minutes before bed. That's what I typically adhere to. Uh, I try not to eat within 90 minutes of bedtime just because I find that it, it messes with my sleep quality. I essentially wake up the next day feeling all groggy and not very good. So I find that it's very helpful to increase that window between my last meal and going to bed. Now, some people actually will benefit from eating a little bit closer to bedtime, especially a carbohydrate-dense meal because carbohydrates, as we know, inversely affect cortisol. So if you're super high strung, stressed out, it might be beneficial to get a high carb meal in or a high carb snack in relatively close to bedtime because you're going to spike insulin. And when insulin spikes, cortisol drops. So that could help you get into a more relaxed parasympathetic state and thus make it easier for you to fall asleep. So as always, it's very individual. You guys love my it depends answers. Um, But in terms of timing your food before bedtime, I usually recommend most people do well with like a 90 minute window between the last meal and bedtime. So just try that, see if it works. If it doesn't make a difference for you, then cool. I mean, um, no big deal. At least you tried it. And then let me see, let me see, let me see, let me see. Another tip, and I'm going through like all my sleep tips right now. Um, I'm going to keep it at this one and then I'll do another podcast on uh, sleep tips. But plan out your next day because a thing that keeps a lot of people up at night is just stress and anxiety and like, oh my gosh, I have to do this tomorrow, I have to do this. Oh shoot, I forgot about this thing that I have to do. You can eliminate that or at least manage it by taking five minutes before you go to bed just to write out your to-do list for the next day. Write out three to five things that you know you got to get done and when you're going to get them done. If you do that, now you can go to get go to bed in peace knowing, okay, I got to do this tomorrow, but I have a plan now. I'm going to get it done. I don't have to stress about it. And you can allow yourself to fall asleep easier because you're not going to be up thinking about things that you got to get done, remembering things that you forgot and all, all this fun stuff. Um, so I find that that really, really helps. I'm going to keep it at that for the sleep tips. If you have any other questions about sleep um, or anything that you can do to improve sleep, without melatonin uh, supplementation, definitely shoot me a DM. would love to help you out. But just to wrap that question up, melatonin production, super context dependent, but for most people, I think they jump to it way too quickly. I think there's a lot of work to be done before you resort to melatonin supplementation um, because there's so many areas that you can improve your sleep and you have potential to improve your sleep without doing that. So hopefully that answered your question. Um, and then the last question I have, let me pull it up real quick. It was on Instagram. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, I got actually a new question just came in. First time that's ever happened, like live on the podcast. So we have two questions left. So first one comes from Alicia0725 uh, on Instagram. She says, what can you tell me about reverse dieting? Is it a scam? So, First of all, no, it's not a scam. I totally understand, though, how it can come off like that to someone who's never heard about it before because it sounds reverse dieting kind of sounds like this gimmick or something um, that like you'd hear someone trying to sell you 
sell you on, but no, it's not a scam. It's definitely, it's a tool um, that we can use to rebuild your metabolic capacity because what happens when we diet for a long time, when, when I say diet, I mean go into a calorie deficit for quite a long time, especially an aggressive calorie deficit, your metabolism adapts because look, when you go below maintenance calories, it's essentially telling your body there's not enough food around from an evolutionary perspective. That's what you're telling your body. You're telling your body there's not enough food around. Um, and the adaptation that you're hoping to get is that it burns in it, it that it goes through uh, fat stores to use its energy and thus burn fat. Along with that, we get other metabolic adaptations um, that can slow down your metabolism, such as a decrease in uh, basal metabolic rate, a decrease in non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and because you're taking in less calories, logically, a lower thermic effective food because there's not as much food to digest. So all of that compounds, and we have what's known as metabolic adaptation. And if you're dieting for long enough and aggressively enough, it's going to happen. It's not a bad thing. It's just part of the process of dieting. And where a lot of people go wrong is that they get to a calorie amount, like let's say let's say someone's starting from maintenance at 2,500. So they go down to 2,000, they see some fat loss for a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, and they stall out. Then instead of taking the time to rebuild and build up their metabolism, they keep going lower. So they go to 1,500 now. They see more progress. Sick. Okay, cool. You went into a deficit. You see more progress. Makes sense. And they plateau. What happens next? Usually that person will take it even lower. So let's go 1,000 calories. Oh, I see more fat loss. Oh, but now it's just starting to get really hard. I don't like this. I, I can't go out and enjoy myself on weekends. My energy's gone to crap. My workouts suck now. What's going on? But I'm still losing fat, so I'll, I'll, I'll stick it out. Then you plateau. This is where people get stuck. They don't know where to go because all we've been taught our whole lives are is um, eat less, move more. Create a calorie deficit to lose fat. Simple enough, right? What they don't tell you is that your metabolism is smart. It adapts and it wants to conserve energy because naturally, if you look at it to survive, it doesn't make sense for your metabolism to be like, okay, there's not enough food coming in, but let's just uh, let's just keep burning the same amount of energy. Let's just burn through all our energy. It's okay. We might die, but it's fine. It's essentially like that meme of that like dog in the room that's on fire saying like, this is fine. That'd be like what your metabolism would be doing if it didn't adapt to lower calorie amounts, essentially. Hopefully that made sense. But it does adapt, and it conserves energy because from an evolutionary perspective, that would help you survive. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just your body's just looking out for you. What it doesn't realize is in the context of modern life, we have food that we're just around every corner, and we're not in danger of starvation. Unfortunately, your body doesn't realize that, so it still adapts. And most people especially people who have these drastic weight loss transformations. They lose like 90 pounds, 100 pounds. A lot of times they get there just by going into a crazy calorie deficit. And it works. And it's, it's great. They, they've dropped this, all this weight. But what happens though is once they've dropped all this weight, they don't know where to go from there. They don't know how to rebuild their metabolism. They're like, ah, I'm eating like 1,000 calories a day and I'm, I'm not seeing any progress. But I don't know if I can go lower in food because like I don't have that much food to go lower in. Um, they don't really know where to go from there. That's where the process of reverse dieting comes in. So what reverse dieting is, it's nothing crazy. All it is, is slowly, systematically increasing calories 
in an attempt to rebuild metabolic capacity. Sounds complicated, but it's not. All it means is, let's say, so for example, the example of a person that we just talked about that started at 2,500 calories. Let's say that we got, they, for whatever reason, went all the way down to 1,000 calories and they just ran themselves in the ground. Now they're just like, I don't know what to do. Our goal is to get them back up to that maintenance calories of 2,500. Actually, not the 2,500, maybe slightly lower, like 2,450 or 2,400 because your metabolism, because now you're a lighter person, you have less weight to carry around and um, your metabolism is naturally going to be slower anyway. So let's say our goal is to get them back up from 1,000 to 2,400 because we want to rebuild their metabolism. Because if they want, let's say so this person wants to keep losing fat, we have to get them into a calorie deficit. But we can't do that right now because to get them into a calorie deficit, that would mean taking them below 1,000 calories, and that's not a good look for most people, like 99% of people. That's way too little food. So what we want to do is rebuild metabolic capacity. So rebuild those maintenance calories and speed up your metabolism to get you to a point where you're maintaining your weight at 2,400 calories. So that way, if you want to keep losing fat, if you want to keep seeing progress, we rebuild your metabolism back up to 2,400 calories. And then from there, once it's already, once it's up there, once your metabolism is rebuilt, we can take you again down into a deficit and have you losing fat again at like 2,000 calories, 2,100 calories. Hopefully that makes sense. Where all reverse dieting in it is, is slowly systematically increasing calories over the course of weeks and months. Um, as far as how long you should be doing it, ideally about as long as you're cutting for. Now, this isn't always feasible for people from an adherence standpoint. People get frustrated with that. So it can be a little bit shorter. But you definitely don't want to rush a reverse diet. Um, if you want to learn more about it and what it is exactly in the process behind it, um, go ahead and listen to the reverse dieting 101 episode. I believe it was a couple weeks back. I forget the exact date or episode number. Um, but go ahead and just scroll through, listen to that episode. Uh, Karan and I went super in-depth on the topic. But just in short, to sum it up, no, it's not a scam. It's a necessary component of fat loss, making sure that you maintain your fat loss. because we want to get you to a point where you can maintain your results that you've gotten. Cause I, I know um, the person asking this question has seen, has seen some awesome results. Um, and we want to make sure that you're maintaining these results without having to eat so few calories. And the way to do that is to slowly ramp up your calories over time. Because what's that, what that's doing is it's allowing your metabolism to kind of catch up. So let's say we increase by a hundred, we wait for a couple of weeks, your metabolism catches up. We increase by another hundred, your metabolism catches up we increase again and so on and so forth until we get you to a point where where you're happy with how much you're eating, you're, you're feeling good, your energy's good and all that sorts of stuff. So reverse dieting is a very necessary part of the process. It's not a scam. Excuse me, not a scam at all. Definitely a necessary part of the process. Um, it's not magic either. It's, a, it's very, it's fairly simple. Taking yourself through it can be tough though, because the, the whole mental side of things is, is a very tough side of reverse dieting. I'm not going to go too deep into that on this episode. Again, if you want to learn more about that, just go listen to the reverse dieting one-on-one episode. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully this answered your question. And let me know if you have any other questions about reverse dieting. Any of you guys listening have any other questions about reverse dieting, you know, just shoot me, shoot me a message, shoot me a DM, and I will gladly help guide you through it. The last question for today, I, I like this one. Uh, so Brian, under, Brian from Boston asks, what motivates you to help people like me? 
So, I mean, first of all, like I've been in your guys' shoes. I've been through it all. So back in middle school, I was way overweight. Back in uh, freshman year of college, not too long ago, like just over a year ago, I was very underweight. I was, I was just to put it into perspective, I was, I'm 6'5". So I was, I went down from, let's say, 200-ish down to 178 which is super, super, I know 178 doesn't sound super skinny, but like for my height, I would stick. So I've been on both ends of the spectrum and I know how it feels to be on both ends of the spectrum. I know how it feels to be the hard gainer that wants to put on muscle, but doesn't know how. I know how it feels to be the overweight kid uh, getting messed with and wanting to change that. I know how, and I was an athlete too. So I know how it feels to be the bench warmer that wants to break into the starting lineup and is working hard and just doesn't know how to do it. So I've been through all of those scenarios. And I've gotten myself through them and overcame them. And a big part of that was nutrition and fitness. So I definitely want to pass that on to you guys and make sure that I'm helping you guys as best as possible. And also, I'm just a real nerd about this stuff. So I really enjoy talking about it and helping you guys figure this stuff out because I find it super, super interesting how you can essentially make these adjustments with specific variables and elicit a specific result. Because when you look at something like, let's say, for example, basketball. You could shoot the perfect shot and it might not go in. You don't know. But when it comes to nutrition, you can make these adjustments. And of course, there's some degree of uncertainty. But for the most part, if you make, it's almost transactional. Like if you make this adjustment, you're going to see this result. Most likely. Of course, it's very individual. And there are some cases, there are some outliers and exceptions to the rules. But for the most part, if you put the hard work in, in nutrition and fitness, you're going to see the body comp changes that you want. You're going to get stronger. You're going to get faster. Those things are a result of the hard work. And I think it's really cool to see that connection between, oh, I dialed this in, I was in the weight room, I ate well, and now I'm getting stronger. I see it in the mirror, my friends are complimenting me. I think it's really cool to see that carryover and it's a really good metaphor for the rest of your life. Like if you put the hard work in, you're gonna see the results that you wanna see. You're gonna see the progress that you wanna see. So just helping other people reach that through nutrition is very, very exciting and I, I love it a lot. Um, and like I said, I'm a nerd about it. So I could talk about this stuff literally all day. You guys know how long winded I am here on the, on these podcasts. Um, I was, I was going to keep this one to like 10 minutes, but apparently that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I just answered the question. Like, I just love it. And I've been through all those different scenarios and I know how shitty it feels to be in those scenarios. So I want to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen. And I want to do my best to make sure that you guys learn from my mistakes so that way you don't have to make them for yourself. So I was talking to another, to a CrossFitter earlier today who had, who had been doing paleo. And it was really cool because like he saw my posts and started um, actually eating more carbs. And because he was eating more carbs, he felt better. He's performing better. He's getting stronger. His body comp improved. And it was really cool to hear that, to hear that you guys are actually taking the, the free content that I'm putting out and applying it. So that's why I do what I do because it's, it's just really cool to see people actually go and apply it and improve their lives, improve their performance in the gym, improve their mental well-being um, outside the gym the rest of their life. It's just, it's really cool. And I'm really thankful to be able to do this um, and to be able to share my passion with this with you guys on the podcast. And uh, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. So on that touchy-feely note, that brings us to the end of this week's Q&A. As always, if you guys have any questions at all that you would like to see covered on the podcast, just go ahead and uh, shoot me a DM or shoot me an email and I'll make sure to one, answer you back directly 
um, to answer your question personally and to answer it here on the podcast for everyone else to hear. Because if you're thinking it, someone else probably has that same question too. So by asking that question, you're helping everyone else out. So with that, that brings up brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. And then as always, if you found it helpful, just go ahead and share it with one person. That's the best way you could say thank you uh, to me for putting out the free content. Like I don't ask for, I know some people do like Patreon and stuff and ask for donations. Like I don't want to do any of that. If you guys can just share the podcast, that is more than enough for me. Um, that means more people are listening. And again, more people are getting help. So appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, let me know what you want to hear on the podcast going forward and let me know who you want to hear on the podcast going forward. Cause I'm trying to bring a ton of awesome guests, um, on, I have a full day of recording tomorrow for awesome guests. Super excited for you guys to hear that one or those, uh, series of four episodes coming out soon, but let me know who you want to hear. Um, if you have any guests in mind that haven't been on the show, if you're someone who wants to be a guest on the show, just shoot me a DM. We'll make it happen. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you tomorrow for tomorrow's guest episode.